Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 8th, 2014. Yeah, now we're going to be doing our light episode today. We're going back to that. We're going to be uh, working our way through the book of Genesis as I ramble on through it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says when we look at it in context. Part of that involves the discernment work of learning discernment is hearing, well, good uh, Bible teaching and preaching. I wouldn't put it up my teaching up there in the great category, and uh, what I've done is is I've started a series, and I'm working my way through the book of Genesis, and uh, I've named the series that we'll be playing here for quite some time here at Fighting for the Faith, although sometimes we'll take a week or two off and plug in some other stuff. But uh, the name of the series is uh, Rosebro's Ramblings Through Genesis, and uh, we're up to the next installment. And uh, so open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, let's get rolling. Here we go. All right, let's get started. And I will open with a quick word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word and curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from your son and bring to naught all that you have done. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And last week we talked about the first sentence of the Bible. There's something lost in translation. And the thing that gets lost in translation is is that there is this unique sentence that challenges us and reveals that there's something different going on regarding God. And we talked about how this hinted at the doctrine of the Trinity. And the, the sentence again in Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha shamayim va'eth ha eretz, which means in the beginning was, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And I've noted here, this is the word right there, that's Elohim, and that's plural for gods. But the verb here, bara, which means created, and this is an important thing, is we do not confess, and the Bible does not teach that God just rearranged stuff. If you talk to an evolutionist, some evolutionists actually believe that the, that the universe is eternal. 
Okay? And the way they kind of play this out is they'll talk about the Big Bang and they'll say, well, what happens is, is there, there's, a, there's an eternal cycle where the universe expands, contracts, and then blows up again, and that the universe has always been. And there are Christians who, being influenced by this materialistic worldview, will deny that God created. Instead, you know, God is kind of like, well, like we are. We don't create matter. All we end up doing is moving stuff around and rearranging it. So that God becomes the rearranger of things. But this actually says God created. And that verb only applies to God in the Hebrew Old Testament. He created out of nothing, ex nihilo. But the problem is, is that that's third person singular. And the noun that goes with it is plural. So again, let me, if you were to just translate it straight, it says, in the beginning, um, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't make any grammatical sense at all. So we're, de- we're confronted with this idea that God is unique. And we talked about how this begins to already, sentence number one uh, in the Bible, begins to hint at the doctrine of the, hint of the Trinity. You, you kind of are left with just a couple of options here. You're either left with Mormonism or, or Trinitarianism. So like those are your kind of two options. You know, Mormonism teaches polytheism, and uh, yet Scripture says that there's only one God. Now, last week we took a look at uh, specifically the passages that talk about Jesus being God. And before we move forward, I wanted to give you a couple of more passages that talk about the deity of Christ. And then also specifically, I want you guys to be able to uh, answer the question, how do you know the Holy Spirit is God? Is there, is, is there a biblical passage that explicitly states that God, the Holy Spirit, is God? The reason I ask the question is because if you talk to somebody like a Jehovah's Witness, a Jehovah's Witness will say, oh, the Holy Spirit is like electricity, the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. Okay, you don't pray to the Holy Spirit. You know, the, you know this is the way they talk. Okay, but can you guys, you know, start thinking offhand? Can you think of a single passage that says that God, is, that the Holy Spirit is God? Think about it. We'll, we'll come back to it. So what we're going to do? I want to give you a couple more passages. And um, one passage in particular in talking about the deity of Christ as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, we'll fill it out and then we'll move on to uh, some other things. John chapter 20, an explicit statement regarding the deity of Christ. If you remember in the Gospel of John, we have a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. And in the post-resurrection appearance, in fact, I'm going to have to switch translations here so I pull up my Greek here. Um, that Thomas missed one. Remember, on the day that Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus appears to the, uh, the disciples up in the upper room, and Thomas missed the meeting, right? And remember, we call him Doubting Thomas. And the reason why we call him Doubting Thomas is because he refused to actually believe what was going on. So we're in John chapter 20. I'll start at verse 19, and here's what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they... This is where it's fun. The Greek is, they will have been forgiven. Anyone... uh, If you do not forgive them... They will not have been forgiven. It's an, uh, the, the NIV is a little bit weird here because the, the tense in the verbs doesn't quite work in English very well. 
So there's the office of the keys, but here we get to verse 24. Now, Thomas called Dynamis, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, he's from Missouri. The show me state, right? Isn't that how that works? Right? So hang on a second here. I'll pull up my Greek New Testament. So I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting, and believe. Thomas's response. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, what's funny is this, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness and you point this passage out, they can't bring themselves to believe that Thomas is actually saying that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And so what they're, bas- what they're accusing Thomas of doing here is basically doing an OMG. OMG, you know, <laughs> right? In other words, blaspheming. But that's not what he did at all. And how do we know this? Well, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The question is, believed what? But there is no blasphemy in that point. He said that's what I'm trying to say. That is the proper text. Or, oh my God. Uh-huh. So, yeah, let me point this out to you in the Greek. I'll highlight it. I've highlighted it right here. The Greek says, Ha kurios mu kai ha theos mu. My Lord and my God. And it has the definite articles in the Greek. In other words, strictly translated, the Lord of me and the God of me is what he said. He's confessing Jesus as his Lord and his God. And Jesus then says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Believed what? That he is, Jesus is Lord and God. Right? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So there's a blessing here. How many of you have actually um, had coffee with Jesus at Starbucks? No? No one? Me either. (laughs) Just saying. But um, so we haven't actually seen Jesus, yet we all believe that he is Lord and God, right? And Jesus here says that we're blessed. So this is another clear passage that tells us that Jesus is God. And Thomas affirms Christ as Lord and God. Jesus says he's blessed because he believes this and pronounces us blessed for believing the same. Let me give you... uh, Yes. This is the first time that it was stated that Jesus and God were in one. That that closely... Yeah, that explicitly I would say yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Jesus, while before the resurrection, before he was crucified and raised from the dead, he... The best way I can put it is, is that he, was, he would always say things that implied, implied, but he never came out and said it in so many words. And notice here, Jesus is not the one saying, I'm God. Thomas is confessing him, and Jesus is affirming him. Does that make sense? Yes. So, this is the first time it is stated. This is super clear, yeah. 
Yeah. Now, Matthew in his gospel kind of does the same thing in, in the sense that he's always pointing to things that allude to Christ's deity, but it doesn't come right out and say it. Now, post-resurrection, things get a little bit interesting, especially in the epistles, but I want to point something out to you in the book of Acts. This is another passage that I think is worth having kind of top of the mind on these things as we ponder who Jesus is. In Acts chapter 20, I think is where we're at. Hang on a second here. Tychius raised from the dead. Ah, yes, here we are. Uh, Verse 13, chapter 20, verse 13. I want to read to you Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. There's something that Paul says in there that is rather fascinating as it pertains to who Christ is. Here's what it says, Acts 20, verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, where we were going to take uh, Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to uh, Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church... When they arrived, he said to them, now no, so who is he talking to, the elders in the church? So these would be the, uh, these would be the pastors of the churches in Ephesus. He's, here's what he says. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I had not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pause right there for a second. Pastors. Who has made the pastors what they are? The text says God is. God is the one who's made pastors pastors. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls pastors. So God has made them overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There's the verse. Verse 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So here's my question for you. When did God bleed? When he was on the cross. Exactly. He bled when he was on the cross. God is spirit, yet Jesus is God and man, you know, all mixed together. As a Spanish friend of mine likes to say, Jesus is Dios con carne. You know, God with meat. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Spanish, not so good with the Norwegians. I'll keep that. <laughs> yeah. In California, people get, they get that. You know, it's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Dios con carne. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Okay, yeah, the, the work of the Spirit, yeah, I think we've all felt it. Um, Jesus says when he sends the Spirit, the Spirit would convict this, the world of sin and unbelief. So any time you hear God's Word, either you read it or it's being preached, and you feel like, you know, how did you put it to me a while back? You know, God's got the red dot on your forehead, and you're feeling convicted of your sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we've all felt the Holy Spirit working. It always fascinates me that there was a whole movement, you know, starting with the time of the Enlightenment, and it kind of had its apex in the 20th century and then started to die out. This whole idea of modernism, you know, that somehow that all that exists, you know, now is, all that exists is matter and material things, and, and the modernists were, became radical materialists, denying the spirit. Have you all ever seen, you know, see, I'm, I don't know if this is going to work with you guys, but I'm, I'm still learning, okay? Um, my wife likes horror movies. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's strange, okay? You know, like, like every other year during our anniversary, I get to pick a movie, and it's fun. And then the following year, it's, it's a horror movie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what are you guys doing for your anniversary? We're going to go see a movie about demon possession? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm speaking the truth. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. She's really into these movies, but have you all seen the classic The Exorcist? Okay, okay, and you know, with, you know, Reagan is the girl who's possessed and stuff like that, but if you remember the story in The Exorcist, the tension is between the priest who's actually experienced the demon possession, knows that the girl is possessed, and he can't perform the exorcism without permission from the church. And his higher up is one of these guys who's a materialist. He, you know, he thinks that the, the girl's just psychologically loony or whatever, but it can't possibly be a demon, right? And so you always have this tension between the people who don't believe in the supernatural and those who just like know that it, it exists, right? And this is kind of the tension. Same, same tension exists in the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose, you know, which is supposedly based upon a true story. Okay, and the, the guy who made that film, by the way, he's a Christian filmmaker, and he's uh, good friends with a, a friend of mine. I don't know him, but a, a friend of mine is really good friends with him. And, he per- and he, he's a Christian. He really wanted to put that out there in a way that kind of challenged our thinking on this, you know, and kind of challenged this whole idea that, that all that exists is the material. Are you sure? Really? And what's fascinating is, is in our lifetime, we've seen materialism kind of start to give way to postmodern thinking to where it, when you turn on the sci-fi channel, they got these people going around with devices trying to talk to ghosts and stuff like that. You know, you catch EVPs or you know, exi- you know, some kind of evidence that the paranormal exists. So we kind of swung the other way, and more people are open to the idea in our society now of supernatural and spiritual and things like that. But the thing is, is that general spiritualism is not Christianity. And we've got to remember this. Scripture reveals that there are fallen angels, demons, who also we can't see who are very active. And so personally, based upon what Scripture says, when somebody's out there doing you know, ghost hunting and, you know, and they're trying, you know, it's like, knock if you're my grandma. You know, that what the guy can't see is that it's not his, it's not his grandma. It's a demon going, ha, 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 I got him. You know, that, that, if only you could see what was going on, right? So, you know, that's, we got to be careful with these things. But anyway, I'm off on a tangent. So, 
Let me come back to that, though, Dale. The Holy Spirit, we'll talk specifically now about the Holy Spirit. Let me give you one passage that clearly states that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, this is not a church discipline passage, so I just want to make it clear that I'm not advocating this passage as a model for church discipline. But if you go to Acts chapter 5, let's read a story here and I'll show you something. And when we start to read it, you'll understand why I said I don't think this is a good church discipline passage. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Again, this is not a good church discipline passage. I just want to make this... The authorities might have something to say about this you know, nowadays. But the important verse here is in verse 4. So actually, verse 3, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Who did you lie to? The Holy Spirit. Okay. And Peter then explains at the end of verse 4, You have not lied to men, but to God. So there you go. There's a passage that explicitly equates the Holy Spirit with God. And we don't need a lot of them. You just need a few. Now, there's other passages where the work of the Holy Spirit is is found in creation. The attributes of, of the sovereign God are actually attributed also to the Holy Spirit. So what Scripture reveals, in the beginnings... In the beginning, God's He created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew, you know, that's the rough little translation of the Hebrew. That there's one God and three persons. One God, three persons. Now, this is an important thing. Remember when I was reading in just a few minutes ago from Acts chapter 20. Let me go back and continue with the passage. And I want to point something out to you. Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So... In that same passage in Acts chapter 20, there's a warning, a warning about wolves who come in among the sheep teaching twisted things. Now, this is important. Christianity from the beginning has always emphasized, and this is apostolic because it's New Testament, the importance of teaching sound doctrine and of right belief regarding God. And because we have this warning from Paul that savage wolves come in among the flock, when we look at Christian history, over and again, we see huge theological battles that were fought because somebody clever came along and came up with a way of twisting God's word in a way that it would impact somebody's salvation. And here's what I mean. The scriptures make it clear if you believe falsely regarding who God is, who Jesus is, and what the gospel is, you're not a Christian. This is strong. I understand that. It's politically incorrect to talk this way today. But I'm not interested in being politically correct. I'm going to tell you what the scriptures say. So somebody who says, I don't believe that, the, that I don't believe in the Trinity. I believe that 
the one God manifests himself in three persons. Now, that's if you know your church history, what I just said should, should clue you off that I'm talking about a particular heresy. There are different heresies that have been rejected through the history of the church. One of them is modalism. Modalism teaches that God is only one person, one God, one person, but God manifests himself in different ways. So during the time of the Old Testament, God manifested himself as the Father. Then and when Jesus was on earth, he manifested himself as the Son. And now that, this, now that you know, Jesus has returned to heaven, God manifests himself by the Holy Spirit kind of thing. So it's kind of like God wears different hats, okay? But it's one God, one person. So the problem is, is that when Jesus is baptized, remember Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice from heaven says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, how does the modalist explain this? Well, it was kind of theatrics, if you would. You know, ventriloquism. So while Jesus is you know, being baptized, he's going, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah, right, right. Now, who believes in modalism? The, the, you've heard of Bishop T.D. Jakes? Yeah. Okay, he's a modalist. He's a modalist. Now, in fact, if you were to do a search for Chris Roseborough, T.D. Jakes, Elephant Room 2, you will find that, you know, in my history, I was actually threatened with arrest when I tried to attend Elephant Room 2, specifically because I knew what was going to be happening at that event, and that was they were going to try to make T.D. Jakes look like he's a mainstream Christian, and he's not. The title bishop, by the way, that was given to T.D. Jakes, that's from a group called the United Pentecostal Church. United Pentecostal Church is a group that formally, officially rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. It's important. Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach the Arian heresy. The Arian heresy denies the eternal sonship of Jesus, or that he's the eternal God, and instead, what they say is that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest creation of God, and that, that that's who died for us on the cross. Why do they want to boil God down to just one? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, see, this is where it gets hard. I, 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 I did okay in college when I took the one psychology class that I took. So, um, but to say that I would somehow be able to psychologically tell you why somebody would want to do that, I would say this. Theologically, each of us born dead in trespasses and sins has a propensity for suppressing the truth. The doctrine of the Trinity kind of rails against our reason. It's one of these things that, you know, I can't, I don't understand how it works. Now, back in church history, there was a huge fight over the Arian heresy. What's fascinating is, is that for a time, the majority of Christian congregations in the Mediterranean were affirmers of the Arian heresy. And during that time, there was a young man um, who's well-known for not being good-looking but being very tenacious. His name was Athanasius of Alexandria. He was this guy who basically said, no, the scriptures do not teach that Jesus is a created being, but that he is God. And he was a staunch defender of the doctrine of the Trinity. And at one time, he was actually confronted and told Athanasius, give it up. The whole world is against you. And his response back is very famous. His response back was he said, no, Athanasius contra mundo. It's Athanasius against the world. Okay? This is a guy who nearly lost his life on several occasions defending the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And his influence was very well noted at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea in 325, they, they hammered out kind of like the final version of what was called the rule of faith, now become the Nicene Creed. And the big fight between the Arians and the, uh, and the Trinitarians was over one letter. One letter in one word. The Arians said that Jesus is of like substance with the Father. Homoousius. The Trinitarian said, no, Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Homoousius. The difference, one iota. So if you've ever heard the phrase, not one iota, now many people trace this historically back to this. The difference between heresy and true biblical orthodoxy came down to one letter, one iota. If you said that Jesus is of like substance with the Father... You're an Arian. If you said he's the, of the same substance with the Father, you're a Trinitarian. And the difference was is that eventually the church recognized, had this battle, and recognized that the Arian heresy was truly a heresy, and they anathematized those who believed and held to it. And for the most part, that heresy disappeared until the 19th century when uh, the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society kind of resuscitated it. So the, more, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to your door, they hold to the Aaron heresy. And the reason why this is not Christian is because they reject God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And they've come up with a God that is reasonable to their own mind. Now, another thing that puts people outside of the Christian faith is a different gospel. Okay? And let me show you this so that you don't think that I'm just being ornery. Um, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And I'll even bring in another passage to help all of this. Now, are you familiar with why the book of Galatians was written? No? Okay. The long and the short of it is this, is that the Apostle Paul, he planted a, you know, he was a church planter extraordinaire. And he was responsible for planting churches in the region of Galatia. But here's the thing, is that Paul, after he would leave, after he planted these churches, there was a group of guys who would come in. They were called Judaizers. And the Judaizers basically said, listen, that apostle Paul, he didn't tell you everything he should have told you. And um, in fact, yeah, he's, he failed to mention that you gentlemen here in the congregation, there's this little procedure that we're going to need to perform. It's called circumcision. And uh, you're not really a Christian unless you're circumcised and you observe the Mosaic feast days and you put yourself under the Mosaic covenant. And, well, this is what these Judaizers did. They added works to salvation by grace. So rather than the gospel, you had the gospel, right? Mixing, mix, mixing works and the gospel together. And Paul, this is why he wrote the book of Galatians, was specifically to address the Galatian heresy, which basically boiled down to a different gospel altogether. And here's what he says, starting at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we preached, let him be eternally condemned. Now, the Greek word there for eternally condemned is anathema, and it means damned. 
Let him be eternally damned. And Paul, by the, by the way, when Paul wrote this, this is the day before they had typewriters, before they had word processors and computers. So if you wanted to make a point, you couldn't just bold it or you know, make it, put it in all caps because everything was already written in all caps at this point. So if you wanted to make a point, you kind of had to repeat yourself. So watch what he does. So as we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally damned. Straight up. So Christianity has always understood that Satan works in the church to change doctrine, to teach false things. Specifically, Satan goes after God, who the God we believe in, or the gospel we believe in, or the Jesus we believe in. Does that make sense? And so if you believe in a false God, a false gospel, or a false Jesus, you're not considered within orthodoxy. You're considered to be outside of orthodoxy and outside of the faith. And so what do you do with somebody who believes falsely? You say, repent. This is not what Scripture says. Repent. Change your mind and believe what God has revealed about himself. This is what Scripture says. All right, we're going to pause the lecture right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, the balance of today's uh, lecture as I ramble my way through the book of Genesis Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. So, uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith. But we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being audacious during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Toki Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? 
Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if it was breathing. Okay, we we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services, but you can at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin, but let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service, then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, would you please be more audacious and just do the hand motions? Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... Uh, the interview is not going as expected. Well, I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer. Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I, I mean month. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Back. 
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually takes the time to work through the biblical texts in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, here is the balance of today's lecture as I ramble my way through the book of Genesis. Here we go. So Paul, then, in the book of Galatians, goes on and explains why mixing the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant don't work, and why Christians are not obligated to be circumcised. And I know all of the you know those Greek believing young men in the churches in Galatia were going, whew, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Let me show you another passage: Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and. In the same vein, Paul, in this section of uh, the book of Second uh, Corinthians, Paul is writing against another version of the Judaizers, and these he calls the super apostles, which is not a positive term. These are guys who, they're, not only are they skilled in false doctrine, but they're good orators and, and you know, kind of go along. You know, they can really hold a crowd because of their rhetoric and stuff like that. But here's what Paul says, uh, verse 1, I hope I will put up... I hope you will put up with a little bit of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, and I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I, but I do not think I am in the least inferior to those so-called super-apostles. I may not be tra- a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge, and we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So Paul's warning here about the super-apostles is that they're teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. And this is not a good thing, and he's chastising the, the church in Corinth for even listening to these yahoos. So, as Christians then, it matters, it matters what we believe, teach, and confess as far as who God is, who Christ is, who the Spirit is, and what the gospel is. These are the things that are worth fighting for, if, if you would. They're worth having a fight. Why? Because what's at stake? The people who are believing falsely, what's at stake is their soul, their eternal salvation. Because if you're believing in a false God, that false God can't save you. If you're believing in a false gospel, you have a false good news. That false good news isn't giving you any true hope because you're believing falsely. By the way, if I were to ask you, show me from Scripture, concise to the point, the clearest definition of what the gospel is, where would you go? 
John 3.16, that's a good place to go. Okay, that's a good passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is good news, yes. But Paul specifically referred in the book of Galatians, if somebody preaches a gospel other than the one already preached, the one I preached, the one you received, where would we go to find the gospel that Paul preached? There's actually a passage where Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, the one you received, the one you believed, the one you are standing on. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the gospel in a nutshell passage. Here's what Paul says. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Aha! Right? He says it right there. Here's the gospel I preached to you. This gospel which you received, on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel, this good news, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Pause right there. Notice he says, what I received. Paul in the book of Galatians makes it clear that this gospel that he preached, he did not receive it from a man. He received it from Jesus Christ himself. For what I received. So this gospel, Paul received it. He says, I've passed it on to you as of first importance. Here it is. The gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Does that sound familiar to you guys? It sounds like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? It's a creed. It's It's a creed. It's right there in the scriptures. And biblical scholars recognize that what we have here is probably one of the very, 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 very first Christian creeds. And the gospel in a nutshell... Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day. And you go, that's it? Yeah. For our sins. That's the important part. For our sins. Now, years ago, not that many years ago, um, there was a uh, heresy that worked its way through evangelicalism called the emergent church. And one of the major proponents of the emergent church was a guy by the name of Brian McLaren. He still technically is you know, one of these, you know, he's involved in the emergent church, but they don't call themselves emergent anymore. That's kind of a long story. But back in the day when I was doing research to try to figure out what these guys were about and what they taught, you know, I actually read many of McLaren's books, and he absolutely cannot stand, and I mean it, this is the right way to put it, this idea that Jesus was punished for our sins, okay? This is known as the doctrine of penal substitution, okay? Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, right? This is what Isaiah says. And by his stripes were healed. Well, McLaren can't stand this. So he came up with his own kind of theory as to what was going on while Jesus was on the cross. Okay, so what's he doing on there, right? And according to his theory, the reason why Jesus was on the cross was to, he basically laid down his life in order to once and for all help his disciples see the true nature of the Roman Empire and that they were a death machine. (laughs) But he did. Okay? So he did this in order to expose the evils of empire. That's why he did it. 
So having read his book, I actually was at a conference, and I was taking copious notes at this immersion conference, and I went and spoke with Brian McLaren. I went up to him and I said, Brian, you know, i got a question for you. I said, you know, I, I read your book, Everything Must Change, and I read what you said about why Jesus was on the cross, that he was somehow laying down his life in order to, so his disciples can see the true hideousness of empire, right? And I said, what do you do with Isaiah 53, where it says he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities? No joke, without blinking, he said, well, it all depends on what you mean by the word for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It all depends on what is is right. Yeah. So he he would basically he would try to find a way to change the definitions of words so that the words don't mean that Christ was actually punished for our sins. It's offensive to him. But Paul, what he received from Christ as the gospel, in a nutshell is that Christ died for our sins. Did Christ die for his own sins? No. Okay. okay. He didn't. He was sinless. He died for our sins. And that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So he died for our sins. He was punished for our sins. And this is the good news in a nutshell. So then coming back to the Galatians 2 passage that you had brought up, that then unpacks this. So the idea is if you take the gospel and you put it in a nutshell, this is like a super compressed file, and you can unpack this thing. But this then is one of the first creeds in Christendom, and this creed, ultimately, when you read the really, really, really early church fathers, the early church fathers, they talk about what's called the rule of faith. And the rule of faith sounds like kind of like a, a rough draft of the Nicene Creed. And so this idea then of creeds is an important thing because, and let's talk about the nature of these things, is that here we've got like an early Christian creed, but the reason why creeds are important is because creeds, the the right ones, they actually say the same thing as Scripture. So when we confess the creed, what we're doing is we're confessing what the Scripture says. And this kind of gets to an important thing. We'll talk about this while we're on this bunny trail. Let me, let me go here, and we'll, um, we'll get rid of the Hebrew. Okay. And I'm not going to use the Latin phrase. I'm going to use the uh, I'm going to use English translation. Norming norm and the normed norm. When we talk about the importance of creeds, we're talking about Scripture and creeds. Understand this. No creed is Scripture. Scripture is the norming norm. It's the norming norm. Everything is normed against Scripture. But a creed, if it's true, is a normed norm. It synthesizes and says the same thing as Scripture. This is the difference between, if you were to use highfalutin theological language, norma normata versus norma normans. So when we confess in the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Does the scripture teach that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth? Yes. Is the creed scripture? No, it's not. The creed says the same thing as scripture. Does that make sense? 
So when we confess these creeds, and keep this in mind then, when we, when we confess the Nicene Creed this morning, the Nicene Creed, the reason why it's so important is because it's a normed norm that says the same thing as Scripture. If it didn't say the same thing as Scripture, it's a false creed. Does that make sense? And everybody, even the person who says, we don't need any creeds. I, don't, I have no creed but Christ. That's a creed. That's kind of the funny thing about it is we live in a day where the idea of creeds is, is kind of fallen out of favor, but I think it's fallen out of favor because people just don't understand what they're saying. Okay? So, credo, the Latin phrase, what does that mean? I, it just means I believe. So, we'll put dots after it. Credo, dot, dot, dot. If I said, I believe that God lives on a little spaceship that hides inside the rings of Saturn and that his favorite food are grilled cheese sandwiches, that's a creed, right? Now, it's a bizarre creed. It's kind of loony. It's not what Scripture says, but it's a creed. If somebody says, I believe in no creed but the Bible, that's a creed. You can't get away from creeds no matter how hard you try. And see, every one of us, because we're not, we're, we're not actually the ones who authored Scripture, every time when we describe what our faith is, what we believe, who we believe in, what Jesus has done for us, every time we open our mouths and say, I believe dot, 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 you're saying a creed. No matter how you slice it, it comes up creed. Remember the old uh, Snickers commercial? You know, no matter how you slice it, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Comes up peanuts, as I think is how that, how, that, how that went. So, when we look then at the Nicene Creed, notice the Trinitarian shape of the, of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. First article, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Second article, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Third article, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian shape of these creeds. Same with the Apostles' Creed. There's a reason for this, is that this outline makes it clear that we believe in one God and three persons. And when the Nicene Creed was finally hammered out, no Arian could confess it because it says that this regarding Jesus. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, and here it is, being of one substance, homoousius, with the Father. No Arian could confess this. And this was on purpose. This is what we believe, teach, and confess. Now the question is, does Scripture teach this? The answer is yes. The Arians refused to confess what the Scripture said, so they were outside the church. So the importance of creeds, then, is it gives us a, kind of a, a rule, if you would, a, a way of measuring whether or not what somebody is teaching is what the Scriptures say. So it's kind of like a rule of thumb. It's a, it's a crib notes. Now, those of you in college, you know, you got cliff notes you know, on a book. It's not the same as reading the book, but hey, it says the same thing as the book, so you can still know what, you know what the book is about by reading the cliff notes, but it's not the same as reading the book, right? You know what I'm saying? So the creeds are, a, you know, if you would, you know, shorthand, compressed summary of Scripture. 
and what I found fascinating is over the years, over the decades of kind of dealing with different heretical teachings is that every heresy in one form or another goes after one of the major statements in the Nicene Creed. Those who embrace evolution deny that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Those who are Arians deny that, that Jesus is of one substance with the Father. You know, and then you, you know, so it's funny. Satan always seems to be attacking these main things. And I don't know why that is, but you look at the, the big battles that have taken place through the millennia within Christianity theologically, it's always kind of at one point or another on, on, on these issues. And, and the reality is this, is that even if you didn't have a Bible, if you confess, if you, you know, confess the creed, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you have the basic outlines of the entire Christian faith. You actually have the Bible in its total compressed format. And it's fascinating how that works. But the other thing is, is it gives you, a, a, it gives you a, a measure to test my teaching by, to test the teaching of anybody's teaching by. There's a reason why we confess the creed after the sermon. That's fact-checking. And listen to me when I tell you this. If I ever get up on a Sunday in the pulpit and I say something that contradicts the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you had better take me aside and say, Chris, you have some explaining to do. What you said is not what the creed says. It's that simple. Okay? Listen, don't ever trust anybody who's a Bible teacher. Not, not even me. Never, ever come to this class or to this church with an open mind. Never. You always come with an open Bible. Because I can tell you this, with certainty, I'm a sinner. And sinners sin in all kinds of different ways. I am capable of deceiving I'm capable of being deceived. So are you. And I never, ever want to hear you say, oh, I believe that because Pastor Roseborough said, mm I'm just a servant. I'm the water boy here. My job is to preach the Word. And if I ever say anything that contradicts the Word of God or contradicts the confessions that we hold, then you know that I'm not rightly handling God's Word and I have some explaining to do. And... The next thing I've got to do after you confront me is clean it up. And if I don't, and I persist in my false teaching, you need to get a new pastor. So the idea is this, is that we're all sinners. The Bible's true. The, the creeds give us a summary of Scripture and what it says. There's a such thing as true doctrine and sound doctrine. There's a right way to, and a wrong way to handle somebody who believes or teaches falsely. But... The, the idea here is this, again, is that I'm a human, you're a human. And false teachers, what did Paul say? They draw away disciples after themselves. True teachers are not going to point you to themselves. They're going to point you to Jesus. False teachers are going to point you to themselves so that your loyalty is to that person, not to Christ. That's a dangerous sign. And this is the reason why, historically, heresies are always named after the person who taught them. Right? Yeah? The Arian heresy was named after Arius. The Pelagian heresy named after Pelagius. They draw away disciples after themselves. And this, this is kind of an important thing here. Is it the, the name on the sign says Lutheran Church. We don't teach Luther's theology. We don't teach Luther's theology. We confess along with Luther what the Bible teaches. Then this is kind of, in fact, let me demonstrate this using a quick, um, 
idea here that you can get. Let's pretend this circle represents true, sound biblical doctrine. This circle represents how somebody would believe as a Christian. And you'll notice that there's, there's an overlap. But here's the idea. When somebody believes something and there's stuff that's outside of the circle, that's unique doctrine. You don't want that. You don't want unique doctrine. You don't want to be able to point to any theology and say, oh, that's Rosebrowian theology. Because believe me when I tell you, if I got any of this, I need to repent of it. Over here, this side is the stuff that you should believe in that you're not. That's the stuff you won't believe because your sinful nature is bristling against what God's Word teaches. And you have to repent and believe correctly. So as Lutherans, we don't want any unique theology. Our goal is to say, we believe, teach, and confess what Scripture says and what the church has historically always taught and confessed. We don't want anything that we can say that's a uniquely Lutheran doctrine. If, this, if it's uniquely Lutheran, then it ain't true. Okay, Because the old word is, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic doesn't mean Rome. Catholic means universal. So in our hymnal, when we confess the creed, it says one universal church. Well, that's the idea. Christianity is the faith once delivered to the saints. That's all of us. Christianity is a universal faith, which means that all Christians in all times, in all places, are to believe, teach, and confess the same thing. And if we're teaching unique doctrines that are peculiar to us, peculiar isn't Catholic. Peculiar is peculiar. It's it's anti-Catholic, if you would. So in a very real way, think about this. We are Catholic. Okay, And if we're not Catholic in the right sense, we're doing something wrong. How's that? Enough mind-bending theology for a weekend? Good. We'll pick up from here. Same bat channel next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.